part two of the Pac-12 Apostles comeback episode, if you will. Um, we've already dealt with four weekends till the Pac-12 is back. How other conferences are helping the Pac-12 and how we love these conference-only schedules and the 9 a.m. kickoff for USC and ASU. Is it better than the 8 p.m. games? Utah loses uh, a big-time player. We're going to cover that and so much more. He's Ralph Ampton. I'm George Reiser, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. If this is your first episode, this is the podcast by Pac-12 people, for Pac-12 people who want to know the real and get the insight and some breakdown of things happening within the conference that you might not hear from other places who are going to try to sugarcoat it or not give you, you know, some detailed insight on it. And so we appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Please make sure you leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and actually leave a review. Type some sentences out as Ralph asks, give us what you think we should have. And... If you want to get a hold of us, I'm mad at unafraidshow.com or at Ralph Amsden for him, at George Reister for me, and at Pac 12 Apostles for the both of us. So I guess we'll pick up kind of where we left off after we were talking about the reviews and all of that stuff. Um, I wanted to go back for a second to these conference only schedules. And I have loved these, Ralph. I have absolutely love them because there's nowhere for the uh for the ACC and the SEC to hide only playing eight conference games they actually have to face each other you actually get Alabama versus Georgia in the middle of the season instead of just you know waiting 10 years for that to happen or it only happened in the, in the SEC championship you can't protect your best teams but it's easy to do when you have a 14-team conference. Same thing with the ACC only playing eight conference games. So, yes, I would like to see that continue. But I want f- for the uh, non-conference games, for them to schedule two Power 5 non-conference games. Everybody play nine nine of their own conference games. Two Power 5 non-conference games. Plus, you can play in FCS or whoever the hell you want to play with your third game. And I am A-OK with that. Give the little guy a little bit of money. Get your seventh home game. Whatever it is that you want to do, I am all in on that. How about you, Ralph? I mean, I I feel like my approach would be even more radical. Um, I would like every major conference to be 12 teams. So if there's a way to get that figured out that would be great. And then I would go 11 and one and I would take the, the one game and make it a group of five game. Uh, and then what I would do from there is you would play your entire conference. And then according to how you seed out in your conference determines who you are going to play in a bowl and where. So no more weird selection processes, no more politics. If you finish fourth, in the Pac-12, then maybe you play the number four team in the Big 12 or in um, in the Big 10 or, or whatever else that might be. Uh, 
and you just keep it all within your conference and you wake up some of the mystery of college football. You know, I just, I, I think that that would make every game that you play out of conference, it would make every bowl game that much more special. Um, but then again, you know, that, that obviously would also require the NCAA to say, all right, well, the winner of every conference is going to get into a playoff. And then we're probably going to need to at large, like three different seeds. And I think that that would make it so much more fun than, you know, what it is that we have now. And even with that 18 playoff, George, I would guarantee that anybody who gets into that 18 playoff plays at least twice. So the the losers would even play each other. You know, I, I, I would change so much about the way that it's currently structured, but for, for the most part, I would just make sure that it's okay if you lose one or two games in your conference, because everybody's playing their conference and that there's a human element to, you know, who gets selected to get pulled out of each of these conferences every single year, which also opens it up for even more argument about who gets snubbed or whatever, but you can guarantee that your bowl game is going to be against somebody good or somebody equally yoked at the very least. Um, my whole thing is why even have conferences if you're not going to primarily play within them, especially in college football. It's not like the NBA where the Western and Eastern conference is just a regional divider. See, I, I am going under the uh, premise of actually like I live in reality, Ralph, (laughs) the big, the SEC and the ACC with all their money they're generating, they aren't going to, unless everybody teams up to the super four, the 64 super conference plus an older Dame or BYU, there's no chance that you're going to have these conferences break up. So I just want them to get to nine conference games and then mandatory two power five games. And we don't have to schedule them freaking 10 years in advance like we no you could use the nfl's model of you know team x with x winning percentage has to play team y with with their winning percentage like you you could use the nfl's model of of scheduling based on success which would allow maybe some of these teams to get more of a, a leg up. So, you know, let's say that you had two other power five games that you had to play, but they were determined by your previous year's success. Hmm. See, because the best thing about the NFL is outside of two or three poverty franchises, you know, that everybody has a shot to be good even one year after they weren't. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because they're scheduling uh, parity. Yeah, so right, and yeah, and you, college football finish fourth, college football finish. doesn't have that because you you were scheduling against another team, and your ultimate success depends on how the four year olds flesh out over the next fourteen years before they arrive on campus. <laughs> well, d- there is some truth to that as well. Um, oh, when we talked about recruiting on the last podcast, so if you guys missed any of the other things that were talked about, go back an episode because this is really one episode broken into two parts. Um, was about Utah losing Jalen Dixon, who was, according to Pro Football Focused, was the number one graded returning wide receiver in the Pac 12. 
You may not have heard of him. And I had to, I had to look. I was like, I wait, wasn't he at Colorado? I thought it was a kid at Colorado at first, but you thought he was JD Nixon. (laughs) Correct. JD Nixon. And, but I'm looking, I'm like, okay, Jalen Dixon, is he going to be a high draft pick? Because I know that there are some much higher, much bigger names. You got Vons over at USC. I'm on Ross St. Brown over at USC. You got, um, at Oregon, you got Johnny Johnson. Um, who who else has some guys uh, that are draft eligible? Um, Frank yeah, Darby, yeah, yeah. Frank, well, Frank Darby should yeah, be on that list. Jamari Joiner out at uh, out at U of A when healthy, I think is probably one of the top receivers um, in in all of uh, all of the West, at least if not if not college football. So, I mean, there there's definitely. Um, it was a surprise to see, but then pro football focus, interestingly enough, you know, their criteria for certain things is really like, again, it's like a pro football focus. So Grant Gunnell grades out as the best returning quarterback. Whereas I think you and I would argue that as far as being a college quarterback and who would you want, would want to have probably isn't in either of our top fours in the entire conference. Um, but I mean, Jalen Dixon, he he did get them almost 500 yards of total offense last year, and he got in the end zone three times. And for a team that lost as much as they did, and for a team that has kind of internally pledged that they're going to throw the ball around a little bit more, that's a big hit. Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that as well. Um, the NCAA is they finally done something good, Ralph. They are going to grant immediate eligibility for a one-time transfer um, that goes into effect August 1st, 2021. So under the proposal by the NCAA Working Group on Transfers, athletes are going to be given one-time transfers during their athletic careers without suffering the penalty of sitting out a season, which reversed the policy from the 60s. Fall and winter sport athletes, so you're talking about football, basketball, those guys that they have to notify their schools of a transfer by May 1st. And or the exception to July 1st for an end of year head coaching change or the non-renewal of their scholarship. Because remember, they aren't four-year scholarships or five-year scholarships. They're one-year renewables. And spring sport athletes, baseball, softball, that they have until July 1st to notify of a transfer and athletes missing those deadlines would not be immediately eligible at their new school thoughts. Um, one, I like anything that is the NCAA essentially admitting that they've been wrong all along. Uh, I love that because they have, they've been wrong all along. And when they change a policy that people were treating like a moral imperative, like if a kid was going to transfer and they had to sit out a year, you would also judge them as like a quitter. Um, Oh, he doesn't want to, he was running from adversity. Yeah, exactly. Or somebody who has low character or whatever. So for the NCAA to come in and make a change to this um, goes to show you that all of that was just bullshit from the beginning, which we knew. We, we absolutely knew that anybody who was buying into somebody making the best move for them, something that other students are allowed to do uh, into a character issue um, 
is stupid. You judge somebody's character on the content of it, not what you predetermine a character issue is based on the hobby that you enjoy. That's <laughs> it. That's just silly. Like it always has been on the other end. I freaking hate it when people transfer because what that means is that the situation that they tried to put themselves in didn't ultimately end up being ideal for them. And just as somebody who I, I just want to see people thrive and I just want to see people th- flourish. And I wish that that could happen without mass exodus from program to program. And I do believe that it does invite the potential for foul play. And so you're going to have to hold coaches accountable to the idea that they can't just reach out to somebody on another roster and say, you would be playing more here. Now that's going to happen regardless. And it already does happen regardless. Um, But I, I feel like this, this invites something like that to be blatant. And a lot of these kids are young and impressionable and they only ended up at the school that they ended up at because of some level of false promise from a position coach who probably already moved twice (laughs) since they got on campus. Right. So um, protecting these kids from opportunistic wealthy coaches who are using them as a step stool to get theirs should also be a a priority. And unfortunately not allowing them to play immediately after a transfer acted as a little bit of a level of protection for those kids, even though I ultimately feel like it wasn't in their best interest. So it's a weird situation. Um, It's a very weird situation. I think putting some type of restriction on movement that, that involves immediate playing time, but that might preclude them from appearing in a bowl or something like that. Um, could be oh, some. Lord. No, Ralph. They don't. They don't want to play in the bowl the games anyway. They don't want to play in the let bowl. They don't play. Okay, they're not well playing then, in bowl games anyway. Okay, so then why do you need a restriction on it? Because you have to. Because any incentive that you create for the players also creates an incentive for coaches to do wrong by the kids. Sometimes you have to protect the kids from the coaches. And so I guess, I guess like maybe the restriction shouldn't be on the players. Maybe it should be on the coaches in that you can only take a certain number, but if you, so our coaches, everything's going to have to adjust from here. So you have 25 scholarships that you're allowed to give to freshmen and you don't have to, but you can. So does that mean that only 15 scholarships go to freshmen because you're just hoping that those kids go to a group of five school where they can play right away and then you can go and get them after one good freshman year? Why should it matter how many that that you can take? Dude, you're acting like the NCAA right now, trying to put these unneeded restrictions on people when it doesn't have to be like that. I'm not. I'm just trying to I'm trying to protect them from the amount of money that is not currently accessible to them. So if you want to give these kids access to a piece of the pie, I'm not going to care at all. But if every decision that a coach, every decision that a coach has made is um, financial in motivation and every decision that a player is making is in their best interest of being able to play so that they can ultimately have financial motivations, then that's an uneven playing field. So 
the idea that re- restrictions even exist is silly. I agree with you there. But if the only way to even the playing field is to have some type of restriction to keep coaches from the temptation of screwing these kids over, then you at least have to consider it until you even the playing field. If you give a players a slice of the pie and it doesn't matter where they go, they're, they're going to get theirs, then that's a completely different conversation for me. But if you have coaches who know that if they can convince somebody from Akron, who is a star player, to jump over to Mississippi State, I'm just thinking of any school off the top of my head, that then they can use getting that player from Akron to Mississippi State to put as a notch in their belt as a recruiter that they then turn into a $200,000 raise as a position coach at Ole Miss, that's not in the kid's best interest. And that already happens just with the way that kids are recruited out of high school. Okay. Now, so okay, so like, I'm on board. Restrictions with are about- not ideal. I'm with you. Restrictions are not ideal, but neither is a system in which coaches financially profit off of the recruitment of players without any um, without any consideration for the fact that often these kids commit to those coaches. So maybe it's coaches. Maybe maybe coaches have a non-compete. If you wanted to put a restriction on coaches to say that like you can't leave a job until two years after you take it, whatever it takes to to make sure that players aren't getting screwed because I know the NCAA is not going to call them employees. So short of calling, calling the, these kids employees and giving them a piece of the pie, something has to be done to make sure that the only reason that a lot of these kids transfer is they end up at schools where the coach that recruited them no longer exists. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, cause the coaches will get out of Dodge And sometimes I think that the kids, you know, that you have so many of these kids that they want that, they want the flash, they want the, the uh, pomp and circumstance around it. They want, you know, they want to go to the biggest school when sometimes you just need to go to the best school for you because especially quarterbacks, especially quarterbacks. I have to this day, I have absolutely no idea how it has not gotten through quarterbacks, thick skulls that going to Alabama might not be the best fit for you going to a team that throws the ball a lot and you're going to get to play immediately. And that's the school you're going to end up at anyway, after you lose a head to head contest with another talented freshman, that should probably be the place that you go from the get go. And then maybe that puts them in a situation where they can transfer to that big school because they've proven themselves and the small school doesn't lose out at all. Maybe it will finally incentivize people to go to a school that's a better fit for them instead of go ride the bench for a program just because they they like the prestige of the laundry and they have an inflated sense of themselves. Yeah, I mean, but you do need those people, too, to fill out your roster. (laughs) You do. Um, uh, There are some players, though. So the Pac-12 had a few players opt out, Oregon in particular. They had their what the whole damn secondary opted out except for Nick Pickett. Originally you had the two starting corners, Thomas Graham and Diamador Lenore opt out. Then uh, Javon Holland opted out and Brady breeze, the 
Rose Bowl MVP opted out, which, okay. And then Panay Sewell opted out, who is he, him and Javon Holland make the most sense to me. I thought that Sewell, if if it were my son, six-game season, he's going to be a top-five pick. I'm wrapping this fool up in bubble wrap, and we're just going to get to the NFL draft. And if – I mean, especially when injury risks are significantly higher on a restart. We've seen it in the NFL the in 2011 and this year with work stoppages. Injuries are are up. So I'm not taking chances in that way. Um, I also, and then Javon Holland, potential first round pick too. Okay. Makes sense. I, um, you had the two corners opt out. I was like, okay. Uh, when there wasn't going to be a season. Okay. Whatever. But when the season, I was like, these kids need to opt back in and you've had one of them opt back in, in Lenore, which I think makes all the sense in the world. It's going to get it because you get a chance to it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind when you're not a top pick and you're going to have the Joe Burrow of your position, play himself into getting drafted ahead of you. And so are some other people. Cause they haven't seen you since last year. They're going to be like, I don't know what this kid has been doing. Has he been working out? You know, he hasn't competed in a year. Yes. We're going to see him at the combine. If there is one, is it virtual? How does this look like? There's a lot of things that can put yourself in financial risk and then you had brady breeze opt out i was like oh boy i don't even know if he's draft draftable right now or he's a late round draft pick and he opted out i was like this makes no sense to me but then uh lenore came back and you also have usc who had i think two opt outs one of them has come back in um was named elijah vera tucker who is one of their office alignment, which is what they need uh, dramatically. Yeah, that, so, that yeah. was really big for USC um, to get Elijah Vera Tucker back. Um, you know, we've had not as many players opt out for COVID concerns as I thought there would be. Um, I think there's, there's probably, I think there's been more in the Pac-12 South than there was in the, in the PAC 12 North. Uh, I know that Jordan Curley is a wide receiver for Arizona state who opted out. Um, Kevin Doyle, the quarterback <laughs> at uh, U of a opted out and then he opted back in. And what has been a very interesting process since he opted back in his dad has been in a public feud with uh, Jason Shear, who is the 24-7 publisher. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's that's been very, very interesting to see Kevin Doyle's dad um, and Jason Shear go back and forth. Kevin Doyle's dad is uh, super pissed off. I think he sent a tweet that said um, um, that Jason Shear has had a horse in the race since day one. Um, and he believes that Jason Shear is like straight up advocating for, um, I don't know if it's, uh, uh, Will Plummer to be the backup behind Grant Gannell. Either way, you know, n- neither one of them is going to be the starter. Um, but I, I did think that was really interesting that, you know, cause he, he leaves and then he comes back and then, and you now, now it's, 
you know, now it's an issue for a quarterback that was never even supposed to be there in the first place. His family is publicly feuding with reporters, you know, about what his place in the uh, actual hierarchy of <laughs> of that situation should be. And, and I'm, I'm monitoring that because that's always really entertaining when we have a dad go off and we definitely haven't heard from USC's quarterback's dad and in, in a hot minute. Um, just adds to the drama of the Pac-12 in, in general. But what do you think, George? Do you think... Do you think that uh, these players made the right move um, betting on themselves? Do you think it's really up to kind of an individual situation? And do you think that the players that opt out for COVID-19 concerns, do you think that the head coaches of these programs will actually treat them the way they should be treated and not make it a character issue um, and, and privately think to themselves that these kids don't love football enough? Uh, depends on how good you are. I mean, really, I mean, who, who was it? It was Utah State's coach who did the, it was, it was Utah State's who, who was the jerk, right? Who said, Gary Anderson, yeah, former you, Oregon State yeah. head coach who quit in the middle of the yeah. season. Yeah, yeah, quit, yeah, quit in the middle of the season and talking about some, well, if you opt out, you're, you're not with us. Basically saying that you're not going to be a part of this program. Dude, stop with your loser moves. It, it, it's, it's just so garbage, dude. It's a personal choice. You want to opt out. And then for the uh, coach, you get the kid for another year. Like, just stop it. Like, you're not losing anything in the situation. Stop acting like a big-ass crybaby, dude. I it, It's absolutely frustrating to me. Um, speaking of another big-ass crybaby, your boy, uh, Michael Leach. He left the... The Washington State Cougars went down to the Mississippi State Bulldogs because he wanted more talent to run the the air raid offense. He knew it could be successful if he just had more talent. There's more talent in the SEC. And I was like, fool, you went to the Washington State of the SEC. I mean, right? Like, he went to the the SEC's version of Washington State, which is Mississippi State. He didn't go to Florida, didn't go to Alabama, didn't go to uh, Georgia, didn't go to Auburn. He went to Mississippi State. I mean, what do you expect? I don't even think they've even won the SEC in good God. I mean, if they've ever won it in good God, decades. So how on earth... Did he think that he was going to get better results? And it was fool's gold week one against LSU because we've seen LSU's terrible and LSU was arrogant playing man-to-man coverage. So if you want to know how to stop the air raid, you got to go back about six months worth of podcast and just search it. And I describe how to do it on there, which was told to me from coaches who have stopped it multiple times while he was at Washington State. So he gets down there, goes, throws for, uh, he takes KJ Costello from Stanford with him, throws for 623 yards. And everybody's like, oh yeah, next week comes back 14 points against Arkansas and they lost. And Arkansas who had lost 20 straight games to SEC opponents. Yep. Who is trash. They are the Oregon state of the, uh, of the sec they yes they have some good years some sometimes and they're trying to come up just like oregon state here and so i don't want it to seem like a diss it's just the truth and <laughs> um and then 
you have. Oh, and then they just didn't even score a point offensively. Their only points came off of a safety. They only scored two points against Kentucky. Against Kentucky. And mind you, the SEC teams have been giving up points like they're in the Big 12. I mean, it, it's insane. Like, the the, the uh, SEC's been giving up. I mean, everybody's been making it rain every single week on the scoreboard, busting the clock. And Mike Leach only gets two points. They throw six interceptions. And what did he have to say after the game, Ralph? Well, I mean, just understand this in the spirit of, you know, people used to listen to us talk about how Mike Leach never takes accountability for anything. You know, he trashed the state of California for having dirty beaches and homelessness problems when he also has to recruit the state of California. Didn't think about how that backfire on him. Got upset with reporters who asked why he always loses the Apple Cup and basically said, just look at the players and look at the recruiting rankings. So he dumps on his own players without taking accountability for the ability to even get players in. And then he jumps to the SEC because he, in, in what is basically a comment on the level of talent that he has at the Palouse. Right? So he... He repeatedly, I mean, he, he is still publicly feuding with Texas Tech over his refusal to take any accountability for anything that went on there. He's still trying to get money from them. So it, this is just a, a, a longstanding pattern of behavior for him. And his comments after the game, he, he said a few things. Um, and, and I'll let our listeners decide whether or not I'm being fair to him. Um, but he said, uh, you know, First of all, uh, <laughs> he said, we're going to have to check some of our group and figure out who really wants to play here because any malcontents, we're going to have to purge a couple of those. So right away, he's talking about trying to get kids out of the program because it's the, the only reason that they would not score is if players are not buying in. Um, and then he says, uh, you know, he 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 argued to get KJ Costello to transfer out there, and then KJ Costello broke an SEC record, and he's already uh, talking about not starting him next week. So he said we're going to have to go back and take a look and see if he's worthy of of being the starter. Um, and then uh, when when asked about the idea of purging the roster, he said, "I think it happens every time you take over a new program. We do have a few fence riders that are trying to decide if they're going to commit or not commit to what everybody's doing here. Anytime there's a transition, there's a number of guys, and I've been through a number of these transitions, who are going to do the wait and see thing. Well, I'll see if I like what I see. Well, that's too bad. The train rolls on. They need to jump on board pretty quickly, or the train's going to roll on without them. So I just want to stop." George, and I want to ask you the question of if he says that every time he transitions to a no program, there's a bunch of people who don't buy in. What's the common denominator there? It's you. Right. It's you because coaches, teams take on the personality of their coaches. And this is the same dude that tried to say that social media was bad last year. His team wasn't focused. They're, they were fat, dumb, slow, and lazy, and entitled. He kicked his whole team attitude. off social media because he couldn't stop himself from being on social media. Exactly. Exactly. And then so here's, that- here's my favorite quote, right? Um, so you, you, you want to hear the word I. You want to hear some accountability here because he's the head coach. Here's what he said instead. Offensively, we're not coaching very well right now. We have to coach better. If you look at this game, nearly every problem that we have was self-inflicted. With a lot of respect to 
Kentucky, but one self-inflicted wound after the next. I've been in plenty of games where we didn't drop any balls. I don't know how many balls we dropped, but I lost count. (laughs) At least he's trying to use uh, accountability words. Yeah, but you would recognize if he was taking accountability, he would have said, I'm not coaching very well right now. I have to coach better. The only time he used I was to say, I don't know how many balls we dropped. Okay, so how long do you think he lasts in the SEC? I don't know. I think this is a mulligan year, but I, I think he they're going to have to be competitive out of the gate next year. They can't have games where they don't score. Yeah, especially not when you were brought here to score points. Yeah, so I, I don't think it matters what happens this year. I think next year is what really matters. They're not going to – this is a mulligan year for everybody. Right. So uh, are you, you know, are you sure? I mean, is it a mulligan year for Clay Helton? Is it a mulligan year for I think so. Um Tom Herman at Texas? Well I don't think Texas is like everybody else. I don't think that they think like everyone else. I think that they have a massively inflated self image based on what they've accomplished since getting rid of Mac Brown. And so, which is nothing. Right. So I would say, I would say that Texas doesn't play by the same rules as everyone else. Yeah. And I they, would say the problem for USC fans is that they have believed that they should play by the same rules as everybody else. Whereas even PAC 12 fans who hate USC would say like, it's very surprising to us that they're not acting like they're better than us and making decisions like they're better than us. Um, They fired Lane Kiffin, uh, left him on the tarmac in a season where they left him 15 less scholarship players than every other, than every other program. And so, you know, where's that USC at? Where's that attitude at? Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I, the, the the fans wanted, but I mean, because I, I was tr- strolling the Texas message board. They're like, they are the same. They are literally mirrors of the USC. We need Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, dude, that is the only thing that they can see. They can see Urban Meyer. Both schools can only see that and nothing else. Like, people brought up Matt Campbell from Iowa State, who's doing a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. We don't want Matt Matt Campbell. He's not, you know, he's not big time enough for us. Like USC did with Ed Ogeron. They hired Ed Ogeron. They wouldn't be in this mess that they're in right. I I think if you're a big enough program, I don't think you need somebody who came up through the success of their own mind and schemes. I think that if you're a big enough program, you need to get somebody who can manage the situation and have other people who do the day to day of scheming and winning games. I think the future, what's hilarious is that's what's working for North Carolina right now. And who's their head coach? Mac Brown. Exactly. I think the person for the job at, at the University of Texas would be the current iteration of Mac Brown. 
or somebody like Herm Edwards or Marvin Lewis, who you could you could bring in. They have the experience to manage other people and get the best out of them. And then you leave, you're the figurehead and you leave it to everybody else. Somebody like Pete Carroll. You 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 need someone who can come in and politic and be a leader, but isn't necessarily involved in all of the X's and O's, and then has the un-Mike Leach ability to then still take responsibility for any of the failings of their underlings. You need that type of personality, but no, they want the See, smartest, quickest guy in the room. And no, usually they, you put somebody on a big stage like that, they outsmart themselves. Yeah, but they also want the big name. They want the sexy name. They're like, oh, we want the all-time, the the guy who can come in and turn the program around immediately. There's only one. It's it's Urban Meyer. And, like, Urban Meyer's not going to Texas. Stop it. Like, he, he's not. It, it, like just the actual thought of that, like there, there's nothing Texas about Urban Meyer. I don't think. I think that he would do well there. I think that he would do phenomenal, but I just don't see that. Uh, that dude needs to stay on TV. For sure. He just needs to stay on TV for, for his own health, for his own. Like we, we especially, you know, we, I talked about the – a year ago on this podcast that I didn't think he was right for USC because I think that we're so politically divided that his politics were going to become a toxic issue. And what has happened in the last few weeks, urban Meyer's politics have started to become an issue that people want to discuss and not the fact that he's a football coach. And that's really all that you should worry about is that he's a football coach. And so like, I, I think Anybody who is interested in being in public life and being able to have an opinion on everything in the world outside of football should be in a position where they're able to give that opinion and it doesn't threaten their livelihood and it doesn't put the people that you're supposed to be over at any risk of having some sort of division with you because this Pac-12 player movement, how do you think that would have mixed with Urban Meyer being the head of USC? Oh, Mm, it would have gone fine until he started tweeting. <laughs> it would have gone right? fine until, until until you pull up his likes. <laughs> Correct, exactly. Right, and and, and, and Donald Trump says something times. about how Pac-12 players are idiots, and Urban Meyer likes the tweet. And then what? What? And then you have me and you talking about his tweets like idiots on this podcast. Well, I wouldn't call us idiots. I say you're idiots for liking it. Um, <laughs> there is some good news, though, for the Pac-12. The women's, well, potential. The women's final four bid for 20, I know this is way off the beaten path, but it's quick. Good news, potential good news. The women's final four bid for 2025 and 2026 will be announced uh, tomorrow, which will be actually Today, when you guys listen to the podcast, um, it will either be Portland, Columbus, Phoenix, and Tampa are the finalists. So two of those four are going to be chosen. Hopefully, like, I think that'd be really good for Portland to get get one, especially being that, uh, like, that would be really good for um, West Coast teams, especially being that Oregon is one of the, I mean, if, if it were Los Angeles, Oregon, like somebody who can compete for a national championship because Oregon state is super good too. 
like any teams that can compete for a national championship, potentially having that in your city, I am all in on that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the the way that the uh, the Pac-12 has performed in women's hoops is something that definitely doesn't get enough um, attention. But I mean, yeah, it'd be nice to have like the 2025 uh, Final Four in Portland brought to you by Antifa or whoever is running the uh, the Northwest. <laughs> by that time well there who knows who knows maybe the universities will have been burned down for two years by that point uh hopefully we'll even be able to have fans at games by 2025 i'm 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 of the current mindset that um if if nobody is <laughs> gonna take any position of leadership to to get us out of the situation that we're in then you know we might just have the 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 final four um might join everybody else in a in a bubble in orlando for the for the <laughs> foreseeable future i want to be optimistic george but it's really hard right now <laughs> i 100 percent agree um, did you see well, Jaden daniels is petitioning to get families to at least be able to go to yes. the football games this upcoming year yeah and i definitely agree with that family should be allowed in the stadium i remember talking to my son's uh uh um uh, athletic director at his at his high school about that and he said well if we can't have parents in the stands we're not going to play and i it didn't really dawn on me and he said george imagine being able to like having a football game and your high school kid is there and he's playing a game and you or your family can't be there he was like i've had a kid my own kid get hurt in a game and there's nothing that like these are high school kids. They're not college kids. They're not pros, like where they're off on their their own. Some sometimes, like imagine you're a kid, and I was like, dang, I've been laying on that field before, and you know, and if my parents couldn't be there, and I was in high school, or at least somebody who I loved and knew cared about me. Granted, co- coaches do a lot of a lot of times too, but it's not the same. I would feel some type of way about that especially being that I'm lending my talents, abilities and, uh, and health to, to, to make this budget money back for you. Yeah. I mean, it's a different era. It's, it's certainly a different era. I, uh, I, I played like four sports in high school for three years and my parents came to one game ever and left at halftime. And I scored a touchdown on the first play of the second half. And so, you know, it's, and that was normal. Like I'm not asking for any sympathy whatsoever because that was pretty standard. And it's it's just interesting to me that we've we you know we we've come so far as to to say that like oh you know we we can't even play these games if the parents can't be there <laughs> when it was you know it, it was definitely a surprise for I think some people in in the 90s and before that if if people even showed up to you know I think a lot of people played sports so that they wouldn't have to go home. And so it's it's definitely a, a perspective and culture shift um, over time. I do think that the families, it doesn't make sense that you'd release kids to go back to families that you're saying couldn't be at the games. Like they're going to be with those families anyway, especially at the high school level. It'll be interesting to see what they do for the college. You know, there, <laughs> there's a lot of handlers, though, that go by uncle. So we'll see what they mean by family. <laughs> Yeah, this is yeah. You got to get people to have a damn DNA test first. 
Um, the okay, so going back, I guess, on a story that has been uh, brought back up by John Canzano uh, from the from Oregon Live. Uh, well, we writes for the Oregonian. He has a podcast, The Boldface Truth, for his uh, radio show out of Portland. And when I saw this tweet, I was like, oh, my God, the, the, the Pac-12 is going to have to hire consultants to to find a way to get Canzano to stop coming at the conference. I was like, there's there, there's no way because because the only way that they can figure out a solution to anything is hiring a, a consultant. And Canzano's not easing up a bit like he was the one who brought out the story about the about the. Um, LA Times he brought out the story about that we're about to tell you right now and a bunch of other ones that are unfavorable of Larry Scott in particular Um, and I think he was the one that brought up oh about the bonuses about the bonuses getting moved up to get paid too so here was the headline well the the tweet headline no media company wanted to partner with the Pac-12 ESPN declined, Fox, CBS, even the Discovery Channel declined. Nobody knows this. We weren't wanted. This is a quote. This is when you had the SEC partner with the with ESPN, 49% or 51%. Fox partner with the Big Ten to own the rights. Nobody wanted the Pac-12. And that is, but it was spun. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll let you tell us, Ralph, about about the spin. What they tried to tell us, how they tried to tell us that, um, like, sell us on their version of you know their alternative facts. Well, I mean, the the whole thing stems from the fact that that um, Larry Scott justifies his salary by saying this is not just a sports conference, but it's also a network. He is the head of both, so his justification of his salary is already uh, a spin. And just a couple of years ago, as Canzano writes, the PAC 12 had 170 employees. Most of them have been laid off or furloughed. They got an empty 170,000 square foot um, building that they run the network out of that essentially they pay the mortgage of the entire building um, based on the 10 year rental agreement that they, that they signed, which was super, um, inflated and, and John Canzano has painted this whole thing as a grift, genuine grift. He said the PAC 12 network faked it from the start. Some of the fun was for those involved. The Stafford worked crazy hours and were passionate and innovative, but they had no control over the botched distribution plans or the swollen budget or the fact that Larry Scott inexplicably drew part of his salary from the network budget while contributing very little in the way of leadership. So, um, he brings up that the, the, the PAC 12 looked to sell off part of the media company that it said that it was for a $500 million stake in 10% of it. And then we were told that the PAC 12, when I say we, I mean, literally you and I at a PAC 12 media day, we're told that the PAC 12 cut off those negotiations because they were actually having negotiations, but none of them were up to the par of what the Pac-12 
um, wanted to take in as far as a partner. And now John Canzano is essentially writing that um, there was no negotiation. There were no takers. There was nobody seriously pursuing an ownership stake in the Pac-12 at all. That essentially the entire thing was sort of a delay tactic to push back against some of the media criticisms and paint Scott as an innovator for pitching the idea of a situation that they couldn't actually fulfill. Um, meanwhile, the media network that is the Pac-12 network isn't even going to be broadcasting any games this year. No football. So they furloughed a bunch of employees and the, the shitty thing, George, about furloughing employees is you're basically telling them they're going to come back to something. They probably have been better yeah. off just admitting that they failed and letting those people go with a severance. Well, they, well, well, here's the, here's the thing that we just got word today though, that some of these uh, employees will be coming back at that. They'll be staggering back. So some of them will be coming back. It's just a, like it's just a disaster dude because you have set these people up to a fail professionally like yes you furloughed them but what is the what is the network like it it's not making money it's not doing what you said it was going to be able to do so now instead of just cutting bait and saying all right look we have absolutely failed Let's do something completely different. I know that this is going to cost some people their uh, jobs, but let's move. But we're already in that situation. Let's move the headquarters. We can keep these people on. Just do a bunch of digital shows and all of this cool. Make some cool content. Hire some smart people and do something different. But instead of that, they're going to keep trying to plunge for it. And Larry Scott is going to tell us that things are going fine. Because you know what he really, really wants more than anything is to get to negotiate another bad TV deal, which means that he gets to stay on and say, well, you know, you know what? I have some really good ideas. If it weren't for the pandemic, things would be different. Yeah, it's the it's the logic of like. We're not going to change drivers just because the person who's in the driver's seat got us lost and we're late to our dinner reservation because at least the person who got us lost was the one in charge of getting us lost. So maybe they can get us unlost. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. It's ridiculous. No, kick the, the person the who... who is causing us all of the issues out of the damn driver's seat. Somebody else take over and we'll figure it out from here. He is a net negative he is a detriment and a drain and a liar and a cheat he is not i mean i mean some of these it's just sports and it's not a character issue with larry scott it is it is definitely a character issue when you talk about bringing people into the most expensive city in the world paying them entry level salaries making sure that they have to commute in and out 
all of the time, as Ashley Adamson alluded to when she was, you know, mourning over all of the employees that they let go in her very heartfelt statement that she put on social media. When you and then you and then you tell those employees like, hey, uh, sit tight. You're paying Bay Area rent and you don't know whether or not you're going to have a job. Then it comes out that you're not even really going to be producing any games on your network for the upcoming season that you tried to say you tried to say was worth five billion dollars. <laughs> you said it was worth five billion dollars. Five billion dollars. Bro. AKA AKA uh five times more than what the Big Ten will make than the Pac-12 over the course of the rest of this television contract. Yep. Nothing about this adds up. And there's nobody, and honestly, it's getting to the point where, it's getting to the point where the biggest villain in the entire Pac-12 is Michael Crow. Yeah, who is the president? He's the president of Oh, there's on the state, yeah. And who was the only one who was around when they brought um, Larry Scott in and whose justification for keeping Larry Scott on is we had less and now we have more. But it doesn't acknowledge that everybody else has more than your more, that you have the least more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everybody else is going up way, way more except for you. So yeah, you're bragging. You're bragging about having gotten wet because it rained. Yep. But if you were under umbrella and you got the least amount of wet, it's not the same as everybody else. And so, you know, it. I don't know what it's going to say. It. It. It seems to me there are a few things in this country that everyone is unified around, and that the fact that nothing gets done. It causes more erosion in the faith of systems than anything else, right? So, like, you could have 75% of the country could want to decriminalize marijuana while the country still throws people in jail uh, and ruins lives over something that an overwhelming majority of the country wants to change, right? Yeah. Those are massive political issues. One a much smaller issue is the fact that 99% of the people involved with the Pac-12 don't think that Larry Scott can do this job and also believe he has actively harmed the conference. That's and nothing the part that's bizarre. That's the part that's bizarre to me is that, like, how does this keep going? Like, I don't understand right. how the presidents and the chancellors aren't saying – I COVID COVID be damned. Stop throwing good money after bad. Like he's and the ultimate result of it is an erosion of it's an erosion of faith in the system. Why would somebody want to support the PAC 12? If the PAC 12 doesn't support the PAC 12. Yep. Dude, I am a person who, um, okay. So, I always tell, I, I think I told you a story recently. I was coaching some uh, kids and, th- and and kids always ask questions. They're always like, okay, so how do I do this coach? What do, you know, how do I deal with things in life? 
And I always tell them, especially when you're being bullied, because I've had some kids on my team, uh, teams be bullied, all of this stuff. And I'm like, here is how you deal with bullies. Here's how you deal with these sit- situations. You don't just, um, just, just expect somebody to come help you because nobody's coming to come save you in life. You have until you stand up for yourself. If you do not stand up for yourself, people will say that whatever punishment or bullying or whatever that it was, it either wasn't a big deal to you or you liked it. So I, like I told the kid on my team who was being bullied, he was like, coach, they're, they're bothering me. I need you to do something. I was like, no, I'm not doing anything. And he was like, what? I said, look, I said, the moment that you get tired of it, the moment I see you stand up for yourself, I will make sure it stops. But because if I go over there, they're just going to talk to you and they're going to be like, oh, you, you're, you're weak. You said something to coach, blah, blah, blah. And mind you, the kid was getting bullied at school too. Next day at practice, he goes off on him. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Don't you? I told you I don't like that. Blah, blah, blah. Went off. And then I went over there. Hey, even though I knew what was going on already. Like, hey, what's going on? Told me. Made sure it never happened again. Then the issue happened at school. He goes off on a kid. Teacher overhears him going off and is like, yo, what's what's happening? And then they start asking questions. So then in his peer circle, he doesn't look like a snitch and he looks like somebody who will stand up for himself. That's the way life works. Nobody's coming to come save you unless you save yourself. Yeah. And I that's mean, the end of my TED talk. Well, and, then, and so, and, but some people just want harmony, right? And in my mind, Harmony with a bad note still makes for a bad song. And so the Pac-12 wants to look, they think, the Pac-12 thinks it's better off having a united front and being critical of Larry Scott behind closed doors than it would be to actually fix the problem. Nobody's impressed, guys. No one. Everyone just thinks that you are inviting this upon yourself. That's all we think. When we look at the Pac-12 presidents and we look at the Pac-12 relative to the rest of the country and in the context of Larry Scott's track record and the things that he has not been able to come through on, namely distribution of the network that he is the head of, we look at the presidents and say, all right, well, you've invited this detriment because you've absolutely done nothing to uh, try to change anything. Yep. And I think, I think that, that that jives with the story that you're trying to tell. Nobody is going to feel for any of these schools if they don't advocate for themselves. But the problem is they have to advocate against their advocate. <laughs> I didn't even think that is, that's funny. When you put it like that, it's like saying that you actually have to stand up to the person who's supposed to be standing up for you. Right. Sometimes you got to fire your lawyer if you want to stay out of jail. Right. Ineffective counsel. <laughs> That's what the PAC 12 has right now. Ineffective counsel. And they are going to be punished harshly and undeservedly 
because of one idiot and his enablers. Yep. And honestly, there's a perspective out there, a cynical perspective, that would look at calling Larry Scott an idiot as incredibly disrespectful to the idea that he actually accomplished everything he set out to accomplish, which was to be an incapable man who got filthy rich and enhanced the wealth of his friends who he used as consultants to help solve problems that he should have been capable to do on his own, all while achieving nothing. Wow. And he belongs in the Grifter Hall of Fame. Oh yeah, dude, he is the ultimate grifter. I don't, I don't but fool t- with him, and 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 I'm gonna tell you, Ed, because you know that people that work at the Pac-12 listen to this podcast. They heard me on Ken Canzano's show and other shows call Larry Scott a grifter, and so it was kind of the first time that I saw him after I publicly slammed him, and I was like, I wonder if he knows that this is me. And I'm standing there and he just, you know, smiles and smiles and shucks and jives. And it's like, wow, like I would probably be giving you the stank face if I knew that you said these things about about me. I tell you that much. But I don't think I'd be doing anything that that would get anybody to be that openly disrespectful to me. Like they can like they would say, all right, I don't like George. I don't think he's good at this, but whatever. But but some of these other things. Yeah, no, not so much. As long as a man, as long as the check's clear, all he's going to have for you is a smile. Yep, exactly, because he's a grifter. Um, yeah, I think that's it for the, for for today, Ralph. For our 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 mega episode, such a mega episode, we had to break it into two. Um, we uh, thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles. We appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Make sure that you not only subscribe, tell a friend, share it with a friend. The games are about to start. It's going to get way, way more interesting. And hopefully we can all be united. And maybe we do need to start that GoFundMe to get rid of this bump. Hey, well, and if anybody wants a 10% stake in this podcast and have $500 million laying around, I heard that's the, uh, that's the going price for a slice. We'll take uh, actually, it. Actually, we'll we'll take one percent of that, and it'll be fine. One <laughs> percent of five five hundred million. I'm I'm fine. We'll we'll yeah for for a ten percent. That's nothing. I'm in on that. Well, well, actually, I mean, I'm not the only decision maker here. Would you be okay with five million dollars for the podcast? Would I be okay with Larry Scott's salary for ten percent of this podcast? Uh, yep. that we just randomly took three weeks off of because we both had back spasms? Absolutely. <laughs> and then I tell you what, when that when that check clears, you probably have to find yourself a new co-host. Because <laughs> there will not be reliable internet where I end up. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Peace out. Catch you guys next episode.